most exciting thing though about this for me, Dan, honestly, is just seeing how much we're spending at Top Golf because I'm pretty sure you're trying to obscure that to me. <laughs> so that's going to be my main question to her Clients, next week. man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's going to get ugly. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. You know, like the Twitter prompt that's basically like, or the old school blogger prompt of what's one thing that you wish you knew when you were 20 that you know now that would have been super useful? Mm -hmm. Today's episode is my answer to that. And we're going to talk about it in detail on today's episode. It's the information contained in the book. Wait for it. We both read it. So you know the answer, but here's the answer. It's the information contained in a book called The Five People that will ruin your life. Is this an intervention? Is that what this podcast is for me? It's, n- <laughs> <laughs> it's not an adventure book, boss man. It's a book that can help you grow a better business, have low stress, and honestly, just improve your relationships. So we're going to talk about that at the end. We're also going to talk about business finances. All that after the news segment. My main news item, man, is I am just already emotionally in Europe. It's getting hot here in Austin, Texas. I spent the whole weekend cleaning out my closet. And that's just my one tip, man. If you want to feel better in life, clean out your closet. Here's my heuristic. I walk into the closet. I pull off the shelf an item of clothing. And I ask myself, do I look fat in this? If the answer is yes, I throw it away. I I give it, I donate that article of clothing. So basically, I'd have uh, no clothes in my closet. I mean, how do you remember the marathon you run? You ran 22 years ago. How do you remember the taco joint in Tulsa you went to five years ago? <laughs> you can't be getting rid of all your t-shirts. You remember we used to do travel tips episodes? Yeah. But one of our uh, tips or, or guidelines was thou shalt not roll. Meaning no wheels on the suitcase. Yeah. Like no. everything you have to uh, carry on your back. That's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's still like a badge of honor, right? I haven't checked baggage in 10 years or whatever. But the reason for it wasn't because we like stuffing baggage in the overhead bins. It was because we often didn't know where we were going to stay. I'm heading off to Europe for three months. And pretty much every day, I kind of know where I'm going to stay. And if I don't yet, I'm going to be booking that on Airbnb here pretty soon. There's been some lifestyle changes. You know what I mean? It's like uh, you're doing a little pre-planning. If you would have asked Dan where he's going and how long he's going to be there, even as little as like three years ago, it was impossible to get a reasonable response. Like, oh, how could I possibly know how long I'm going to be in Europe? How could I possibly know what cities I'm going to be going to? Therefore, how could I possibly roll my luggage given there could be some cobblestones along the way? My life is like a jazz composition. Just waiting on the chord change, (laughs) my man. (laughs) Well, thou shalt not roll. Those were good days, but I've since had a a young child. And so those thou shalt not roll days pretty much went out the window. There's some good things, though, that also came with those days. Re-entering the United States, getting asked by the TSA agent how you could possibly just have a backpack after two months. And (laughs) you just stood there and went back and forth about how it was possible. It's not possible. It is possible. It's not possible. 
So now those days are over because you're yep. rolling a suitcase and you look like a well-adjusted human being. So there are some advantages to not rolling. It's a digital nomad rite of passage getting pulled to secondary. Most normal people never know what happens in that room. Well, I know. It's not fun. <laughs> Here's another couple of travel maxims for you. Number one, the 80% rule. Only pack your bags up to 80%. A guy like me, man, I, I can't get stressed out and sweaty in the airport trying to stuff everything, figure out where everything fits in my luggage. Plus, how am I going to bring back some amazing souvenirs? Leave 20% of your bag unpacked. That's right. You think those keychains aren't going to take up a lot of room and those magnets and those mugs, but they really do. <laughs> you got to leave room in your bag. Speaking of sweaty, I also am taking my bike. I don't know if you all travel with your bikes, but Ian and I do. I just think it's a really cool... I mean, obviously, I wouldn't suggest that for most people. You should maybe do rentals or stuff, but we're pretty particular about the bikes. But it's one of the things I look forward to the most is putting together the bike when I get on the ground in Paris or Barcelona or London and taking off for a ride. It's a great way to get a feel for the city. All right. So let me just recap here. If you're gaining weight, throw away your clothes. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're over 40, don't carry a backpack anymore. What am I missing? I don't know. We should just move on to some business stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Last week, it came to the pod, Ian, and talked about DC Black, which is our new community for seven and eight figure founders. How's the response been? Too busy to even be on this podcast, honestly. It's been amazing. Yeah. We put out an interest form, put out a little information about it. Essentially, it's a mastermind. The cornerstone is a mastermind for seven and eight figure entrepreneurs. We're uh, starting another forum within the DC where those folks can communicate. And we're probably going to have some exclusive events in the next 12 months as well. So it's been really well received. I can't wait. We're starting to put together the groups. The doors close on June 1st. So if you're interested in joining, schedule a call with myself, fill out the form, join. We'll see you in there. Yeah, we always marvel. We talk about it, I'll say it again. I mean, you just don't know who's around until you put the offer out. You know, a lot of people that run seven and eight figure businesses, maybe they're not the people that comment on the podcast or on Twitter or on in the DC forum or whatever. But when you put up an offer for something that's relevant to them, they will come out of the woodwork. And so it's been cool to see fresh faces and new names and a bunch of exciting businesses. Yeah, I actually had a couple calls last week, listeners of this podcast that are not in the DC that are going to be joining. The reason, and I don't know, maybe this is like obvious, right? But they're like, the reason they didn't join the DC is because they thought it was like really travel focused and mm. not so business focused. And I think that's kind of surprising based on the 10 years of episodes that we've done, but maybe not. I mean, maybe people do think that the DC is travel focused. I think that the one thing that bonds people together in the DC is they like to travel and they're always kind of looking for an excuse to travel. But like something like, I don't know, what was it? 50, 70% when we pulled have a home base? 88. 88? Wow. So 88% of the members in the DC have a home base. So yes, only 12% of us identify as digital nomads at the moment. Right. So there's 88% of people may or may not roll their suitcase. <laughs> but I thought that was really surprising. I mean, I kind of knew that. And like, obviously hanging around the community for years and years. I mean. Obvious to me, maybe not obvious to everybody that's listening. Cool, Ian. I know to partially today's episode was inspired by some of the common problems we're seeing in and amongst this group of founders. I'm curious if you could just gesture towards some others. Like, you know, I guess the assumption of needing to have a private community for these issues is that by definition, not all 
business conversations are addressing the specific needs of seven and eight figure founders? Yeah, I think a very common conversation that's come up recently and like forever is essentially like, you know, the journey from basically solopreneur to I have a couple of people working for me to, okay, now I have like a legitimate business with like 10 or 20 people working for me. And it's like, how do I organize this operation? How do I legitimize this organization? How do I turn this from something that's not just personal income into company income? And we're going to talk a little bit more on this show about what happens from a financial perspective. But like this narrative, it goes on for every entrepreneur, I think, that makes it to seven or eight figures. It's like, okay, whether I want to acknowledge it or not, like I have a real operation on my hands now. We have product market fit. Now what do I do with all these people? How do I not become like the center of the organization? Meaning how do I give everybody else control, help them to flourish in their positions, have the company grow independently of the owners? You know, these are a lot of the issues that these companies are going through. Cool. What I wanted to do is just pick out the finance issue and right now and, and use ourselves as guinea pigs here, Ian, because sure. we got to admit, we got a problem. And I want to kind of like, I think it's shared with a lot of listeners. I, we know it's shared with a lot of listeners. And so if you get anything out of this episode, maybe you can learn from something that I think we let lay for too long. Uh, I've talked with plenty of uh, people over the last couple of weeks that have let it lay longer than we have. (laughs) (laughs) And they have much bigger businesses. So I I think this is like common from virtually zero revenue, like all the way up to like mid to late seven figures. Okay. So I want to outline the problem and then maybe we could talk about why it exists, you know, because it's kind of strange because it seems simple. The problem is, is we didn't know where every dollar was in our business exactly. And because of that, we had a hard time making quality projections and budgets. And because we couldn't do that, we had a hard time making reliable top-level strategies that could inspire buy-in and that could be backed up by solid financial reasoning. You say simply, but that was very complicated. Why? Is it complicated to know where every dollar is in your business? I sort of, we both kind of woke up. We were having a lot of debates about the direction of certain things in the business. And I think we both kind of like rage. I rage woke up one morning. I'm like, I can't go another day in this business without the person in charge of finance in our business, like knowing what kind of shower gel I like, you know, or whatever. Like the, the sophistication just wasn't there with our bookkeeping agency. And, but we let it go. And, and one of the thoughts I had was like, our bookkeepers, like we have this great recruiter that works with us named Krista. And she works for Remote First Recruiting, shout out. I think our bookkeeper like knows that the name Krista is associated with Remote First Recruiting, but doesn't know what the product is or who Krista is, if that makes sense. And like, because of that, there's an issue of information fidelity over time that when we're making projections from the categorizations that our bookkeeper was creating, they just weren't right. We couldn't trust them. So we ended up having to make facsimiles, but we ended up with three key problems, which I think a lot of founders share. The key problems, Ian, were the difficulty in agreeing on strategies because you have a lot of people that are smart, like advocating for strategies that make a profound difference in the day-to-day operation of the company. We had a really hard time generating like solid financials to advocate or to represent what those strategies could mean. Right. 
I'll give you like an example of that. Is like, uh, so uh, like, how's a uh, remote first recruiting going? It's like, well, yeah, it's uh, looking good, man. It's profitable. It's like uh, I can tell here because like here's the money going in, here's the money going out. It's like, well, what kind of profitable is it? Well, how much budget do we have for marketing? Well, what happens if we hire two more people? Well, what happens if business goes down 20%? These are the questions that we couldn't answer, right? So it was like the bookkeeper was doing a basic job inputting the top line revenue and the costs. And then we could look at the bottom and say like, okay, here's basically what we made. But you can't like actually get real work done based on just that information. It's a lot more granular, right? So for us, it gets a little more complicated. And I think everybody has this situation where it's like, well, how much did we spend on LinkedIn? Well, we have this other company that also uses LinkedIn. Yes, now you're talking. But this other company is, well, we have this spreadsheet that the company's keeping, but the bookkeeper doesn't know about. Well, did they catch it this month? You know, did anybody let them know about that? And so when you're talking about like, trying to figure out where every dollar in the organization is getting spent, it really starts to matter at scale. And for us, when you have like five, six, seven, eight, ten 10 different product lines, 15 employees, it starts to get real complicated. And the lack of fidelity impacts the way that you can make decisions about the business. So in the beginning of running a business, I think it's very common to like make gut decisions. It's like, this is what the market needs. This is what I see as the opportunity. And like, that's a lot of times like enough to like get a business yeah. off the runway. And then all of a sudden, the fog rolls in and you're looking at your <laughs> instruments, right? Except our instruments and our airplane don't exist because they're fogged up too. So it's like, well, I've been to this airport before. I think you bank right and then you bank left. And then I think the airspace is over this way. So this is a situation that we started to get ourselves into, which is like, okay, we knew enough to get off the ground, but now we're kind of flying blind. Even though we have numbers in front of us, they're not good enough to make like the next level decisions that need to be made in this organization. Yeah, I mean, we might be able to decide, do we have a kind of afford to hire somebody? But I think your example of like, when we split out remote first recruiting from DJ, now all of a sudden you need some horsepower on, well, what expenses are associated with each brand? And how's that going to impact your decision? Because we ripped out the brand and see new revenue over here, but a lot of like the sort of institutional costs are associated with the old brand. And that's the sort of thing that like we were losing trust in, in terms of like what was happening. So we talked about difficulty in agreeing on strategies. The second problem we had, we had difficulty managing the team because we didn't always have clear targets, especially for things like budgets. Yeah. We're at a, a point in our company, and I think a lot of companies do this, where they start to create internal like P&Ls, profit and loss sheets and projections. And then like you have your company financials, like which are maybe in QuickBooks or something. And if you're, you know, sub a couple million dollars, you probably just have a bookkeeper that files away the receipts every month. And then you have an accountant that basically does your taxes, right? So a lot of times as an entrepreneur or a CEO, you find yourself kind of being in that financial position or that CFO position in the company where you have to make these decisions. So in our case, I'll give an example like events, right? So there are a big event in Mexico. It's like internally, we'll create a P&L for that event, which is like, okay, here's how much the event's going to make, we think. And here's like all of our costs associated with it. So it's like venue costs, hotel costs, team costs, all this stuff, right? You get to the bottom and then you're trying to figure out like, okay, do we need to break even on this event? Do we need to make a little bit of money? Is it okay if we lose money? All these questions are going around. Meanwhile, you're trying to figure out 
like decisions that need to be made with venues, right? And this is like any business could be like this. You could be making a physical product and the question, the questions would be the same. So it's like, well, do we do the letter etching on the mugs in gold or do we do it in silver? Because it's like a dollar more per cup, right? <laughs> and it's very hard to run a business if you don't have like clear ideas about what these numbers are going to be. Yeah. So in our case, we were reasonably running that event in particular, but you get to the end of the day and you make a couple of bad decisions, especially if you don't have cleared in your numbers like real time and you get yourself in big trouble. That brings us to the third problem, Ian. We talked about Green on strategies, managing team members, and finally efficiency. So, because we didn't have, you even mentioned it there, we had a PL for the event. Why wasn't that taken care of in the financial function of our company? Well, because we couldn't trust it. And so, everybody in the team was like building dashboards and like PLs and cash flow prospectus and stuff based on their own individual aims and requirements. So, me, for example, you know, every time I wanted to like advocate for a new strategy or launch a new product, it was like, my own personal pro forma. You know, I was building up a yep. new cash flow spreadsheet and trying to like pull out the data from QuickBooks to model it towards like a hypothetical future, but basically having to do a lot of napkin math. And the whole team was doing it. It wasn't just me. And so what ended up happening is a lot of the financial function was taken care of in the operation of our business because, you know, we just didn't have a, an adult who knew every functional area of our business. And that just became like a crying need and something that we see across all so many companies our size. So why is it the case that companies like us, why do we get ourselves in this position? We get ourselves in this position, Dan, because it changes. Like you don't need a CFO when you're doing zero revenue. What you need in like phase one is like a napkin sketch of like how you're going to make money in a shoebox. And like the shoebox is like a really old metaphor. It's like the save icon in your browser. Like no one knows what a disk looks like anymore. But like the shoebox that used to be that like you threw all your physical receipts in a shoebox. And then at the end of the quarter of the year, you would like send those to your accountant. Problem is they started using thermal printers and the ink would disappear. <laughs> so on and so forth. It became a problem. But anyways, like that's like kind of phase one, napkin plus shoebox. Phase two is napkin, shoebox, and then payroll and budget, which is like a shoestring basically plan which is like, okay, I got one or two people. I'm still viewing this basically as my personal income. Like everything that like comes through this business at the end of the year, there's like $250,000 sitting there. I guess that's mine. I'll take that. Thank you. I guess we made money. Looks good. I'm happy with this income. That's kind of phase two. Yeah. A lot of people never leave that phase, by the way. That's like totally acceptable. It's basically like I have some kind of agency. I'm like a one, two, three person band here. Like, it just makes sense. Like, as long as I'm making a decent living, I'm fine. And then phase three, basically, where we found ourselves is like sophistication level. Like, I need financial intelligence. So it's not good enough that I have a bookkeeper and a CPA to file my taxes. I also need intelligence from those people. And I think, you know, we've had this before, Dan, in a previous business. And we got ourselves to the point because we essentially hired a bookkeeper at phase like one and a half, and they didn't scale with us. And I think this is like very common. It can happen with your CPA too, which is like, hey, I have new problems now. My back's starting to hurt. My ankle's starting to hurt. I can't just go to the general practitioner anymore. Like I need some specialists here. Well, what we started, we recognized it internally, but started producing all our own internal P&Ls and projections and stuff rather than building out a finance function. And I feel like that's the hard turn we're making here. 
And I'll tell you the reason why we did that and why everyone does that is because they feel like this person doesn't exist. And like, how can I ever hire somebody in my business that's going to care as much as me, that's going to have the emotional and intellectual EQ, that's going to have the skill set and not a price point? Well, my friends, I'm here to tell you that we found this person. And it wasn't from our job board, which is amazing. <laughs> Shout out to The Mom Project. So basically, The Mom Project is like, it's basically like mom type figures. I don't think it's all moms necessarily, but it's like people that have real professional skill sets that are looking to reintroduce themselves into the workforce. And that's exactly who we found. We found a CPA that's living in the South that worked at some major corporations that everybody's heard of. That's basically like homeschooling her kids, like looking to use her skill set again. So it was perfect. She was like, this is amazing. You guys are offering exactly what I want to do in a small company. I'm not ready to like go back to corporate. And for us, it's like, you're going to care as much about our business as we do. And you're going to provide solutions to the problems that we have. So I think the Mom Project, Dan, is an amazing platform. And I think we're probably going to hire there again in the future. Yeah, very cool. I mean, basically, this kind of hiring framework, we've leveraged quite a bit in the past few years. We'll call it, you know, like high octane, low hours. It kind of like, win-win situations where people, they don't want to dedicate their life. They want to dedicate their intellect. And in the case of our business, and I think a lot of listeners, this is hardly a full-time job. But, you know, I guess like the kind of wake-up call for me and you, and I guess I'll just put this out as a closing to this segment, is like, just imagine if you woke up tomorrow morning and knew where every dollar was in your business, and that on the fifth of every month, you arrived at a one-hour financial strategy call where not only are you knocking out financial issues, but you're making projections on key projects and strategies, now you're able to equip your team with a strong budget and a vision for the financial goals that they need to make, not just KPIs that sort of approximate towards the financial outcome that you're seeking as a founder. So that's what we're going to be working towards. It'll be an ongoing story on the show and shout out to the Mom Project. Hey, this is Dan. Just to remind you, if you love listening to the Tropical MBA podcast, thank you. Thank you for listening. Check out our brand new website. We just put it up. It's over at tropicalmba.com. Since we don't do new segments on the show every week, the most consistent way to hear about the stories from the thousands of founders that listen to this show every week is to sign up for our newsletter. And as a thank you for doing so, we'll send you a free copy of our book before the exit, some templates that we use to scale and hire in our business, as well as some other goodies. You also receive one email a week that outlines some of the key things that are happening in our community, at our podcast, and with the founders that listen to this show. So check out our newsletter on our brand new website over at tropicalmba.com. Most exciting thing though about this for me, Dan, honestly, is just seeing how much we're spending at Top Golf because I'm pretty sure you're trying to obscure that to me. So that's going to be my main question to her. Clients, man. <laughs> oh, it's going to get ugly. All right. So that's the message of today's show. Um, yeah, I'm excited for that, Ian. Can't wait. And also, like, I'm just kind of invigorated by this concept of, of finance and having financial intelligence in our companies. I'm looking forward to, you know, doing a lot of episodes on that theme coming forward. Like, what do we do with this information now that we have it? A lot of us didn't go to school for this stuff. So I'm excited to see what that brings to our company and to our strategies. All right. As everybody knows, Ian and I are doing the podcast now without a producer. 
So send us an email and let us know how you're doing. Of course, there's a power struggle going on between the two of us to determine what kind of content comes on the pod. That's right. We're scribbling notes. We're sending emails. We're jockeying for positions. I'd like jockeying. to turn this personally into a comedy show. You probably more <laughs> philosophy. So, uh, so I'm doing the middle ground, which is psychology, which is part joke, part philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, burn. I want to share with you, Ian, or I want to talk about this book, Ian, that represents a topic that was life-changing for me. And also something that I so, so wish I knew when I was 20 years old. So the book is called Five Types of People Who Can Ruin Your Life, Identifying and Dealing with Narcissists, Sociopaths, and Other High-Conflict Personalities. The author is Bill Eddy. I've done a deep dive on this one, Ian. I've read about 10 books in the category. One of the other really wow. good ones. Yeah. Coming out of the closet <laughs> here, Boss Fed. I'm I, personally scared. <laughs> I'll tell you what led to this. Another really good one is called Stop Walking on Eggshells. So the basic idea is this. Look, I'm all about positivity. Let's make another sale. Let's build a great marketing. Let's go to a great trip. But a lot of what having a good life is, from my perspective, is not wasting your time, not getting caught up in problems, avoiding people who could derail your ambitions. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's a little bit harder than advertised because it can be subtle people who introduce conflicts or problems into your life and having a framework for anticipating it and avoiding it in advance before you get into any kind of problems, I think is extremely powerful. Now, a lot of the people that you know that cause problems might be in your family, right? Or they might, you know, you have a commitment. They might be on your softball team or whatever, and you can't quit the softball team. You're going to win the league championship. Might be your business partner, perhaps. <laughs> it might be a business partner. Perhaps. You can't just leave. But if you understand these frameworks, you can manage those relationships with less stress and less energy. And that's why I wish this is one of the things I'd really want to know when I'm 20. And the concept is simply this, Ian. It's the concept of personality disorders and specifically high conflict personalities. You especially, and I think a lot of people do this too, like maybe like hang around a little too long just waiting to see the good out of the train wreck. There's got to be an underlying good here, right? <laughs> but I think that's like really common. I, I'm not saying that it's just you alone that do that. I'm sure I've done that in the past too. But so is the real problem, is it like hanging around too long? Is it like identifying these people and then like trying to get rid of them? Like what's the real problem with these high conflict individuals? Well, when you said that, I thought maybe next Thanksgiving everything will work out. That can be one of the ways that this manifests, which is you keep going back to the same well and the same negative pattern with the same person, hoping that something's going to change. You start to understand the literature around how personalities work. It's a personality. That person's not going to change. So it can be very empowering when you understand, like, if some people that you know that are causing drama in your life actually might fit into one of these categories. So it's about one in 10, the author says, one in 10 people walking the earth right now has a high conflict personality and is likely to cause problems with anybody they encounter, let alone you. And so the question then becomes like, well, how do we figure out who these high conflict personalities are? 
the different types, I'll re- list them off here. Narcissistic, borderline, antisocial, sociopath, paranoid, and histrionic. The one that really started this whole journey for me is the borderline type, Ian. I think everybody can relate to somebody who's borderline, but I didn't know about this. Essentially, a borderline person is someone that has trouble regulating their emotions and you feel like you're walking on eggshells around them. Like every time you kind of like leave an interaction with them, you feel a little off, like something weird happened, but you're not quite sure what happened. That's sort of like the borderline type. And you're tempted to think, and this is why I think these frameworks are powerful, that that person's normal and that like maybe you did something wrong and you should fix it up next time. And, And finally, you'll find a way to get on the right page with that person. Well, sort of the literature suggests that, nah, not really. <laughs> Let me read a little excerpt from this excellent book. Warning signs in the 90% rule. People with high conflict personalities are surprisingly predictable. Once you know the warning signs, since they became, can become so dangerous, this basic knowledge is becoming more and more essential for everyone. And it's not complicated. It's all about recognizing patterns. So HCPs have a narrower pattern of thinking, feeling, and behaving than most people. That means that HCPs act the same way over and over again in many different situations with many different people. The high conflict pattern makes their behavior more predictable than that of the average person and makes it easier to identify someone as a possible HCP. One of the most important and easiest things to recognize about HCPs is that they do not work to reduce or resolve conflicts, although they will often tell others that they do. High conflict people have a pattern of behavior that increases conflict rather than manages it or resolves it revealing warning signs that you can look out for. And this is the key part here, Ian. It is essential to understand that with high-conflict people, the issue that seems to be the cause of the conflict is not the actual cause. The issue is not the issue. This part in particular, I find incredibly empowering. Let me give an example. Say you have a father-in-law who you can read about how personality disorders develop. It's quite sad in many ways but that is always at your house during holidays, giving you feedback about how you should raise your kids. And it creates this conflict situation. Like the father-in-law is like very confident that you're kind of messing up your kids and that you should be doing it differently. And so you end up having this discussion about the issue of, well, I believe I should raise my kid this way because of this reason. And then the father-in-law talks about, well, you should do it this way because of this reason. Now, a normal person is tempted to think that that's a conversation in good faith. But if you can identify the father-in-law as an HCP, that has one of these five categories, you can realize that it's not the issue at all that they're talking about. That what they're actually doing is something like projecting an internal pattern that's critically important to their personality for reasons you can do a deep dive on. But it starts to explain things so cleanly and gives you a clear path of action which is to put this debate on ice. It's not a debate at all. You're not actually talking about child rearing. You're just experiencing a personality getting expressed. And those are Mm. two very, very different things. You can see here sometimes people say things like, I'm walking on eggshells, or it feels like we're having different conversations, or we're just inhabiting different realities. If you ever feel that way, then maybe, maybe you're dealing with someone with one of these identified personality disorders. When you're talking about this, Dan, unfortunately, I, I'm thinking about my environment. And uh, I wonder if this is exclusive to people because I feel like my cat might have this disorder. 
cat is the sixth personality disorder. Oh, man. <laughs> he is a very high conflict individual. And as he's almost 20 years old now, which happens to most older people, right? They just say things that are inconsiderate. Uh, <laughs> they uh, speak out of turn, you know, and then we just blame it on them being old and entitled. Yeah. So I definitely see a pattern. But all jokes aside, I think here, the important part is uh, what we're trying to accomplish, which is like a better life for ourselves and those around us. And uh, we're trying to do that vis-a-vis business. And so if these people are in your way, you got to get rid of them. Like you get enough of these people in your life. Hopefully it's just one, right? Even if you have one in your life, hopefully you don't live with them. It can really get you off track from what you're trying to accomplish here. Like what we have to do in these businesses are hard enough. Like you have market forces, you have competitors, you have all kinds of things that you have to overcome, obstacles to entering different industries. And then you put a couple of these people in the way and you're doomed, man. You're just absolutely doomed. Yeah. It's like I said, some people are better at this than others. For me, this is absolutely breakthrough thinking. Here's five ways you might, of course, you got to read the book and others like it, but how might you identify someone has HCP? Because it's not always clear cut. By the way, I just want to, if I haven't already, caveat, I'm not a psychologist. I think this stuff's useful and under talked about in the business space. And so I want to flag it up because like you said, this is important. The first way we might do this is something the author calls the 90% rule. So the 90% rule is simply, would 90% of people take that behavior in that situation? So one example is like Lance Armstrong that's given in the book, who seems to be willing to say or attack anyone in order to achieve his aim. Would nine out of 10 people do that? Like if someone presented you with a fact, Ian, about your behavior and you didn't like that fact, would you drag their reputation through the streets and try to tar and feather them? Probably not. But depends how many yellow jerseys I have, I guess. But okay. (laughs) Number two. So the 90% rule is one thing the author talks about. If you feel like you're walking on eggshells, if like you're maybe not in the same reality, if your experience with the person is diametrically opposed to what others experience with them, that's often very much a red flag. Like when people hang out with you, Ian, I pretty much hear the same returns. You know, Ian, great guy, weird cat, awesome cars. Mm -hmm pretty consistent. But sometimes if you're, say, a family member, very close with someone with a personality disorder, sometimes say they treat you very inconsistently or poorly, but then everyone else thinks that person's amazing. That's very much a red flag for this kind of thing. And then finally, constant drama and the sucking of oxygen. So Ian, me and you, we have a bicycle club. It's called the Trace Amigos Bicycle Club. Someday I hope to turn it into a charitable organization. Uh, As the name would suggest, there are trace amigos in the bicycle club. And typically the drama in the club is like 33%. It's not like, uh, Ian, again, he's like 87% of what we talk about around here. It's pretty much like split evenly down the lines. But if one of us was an HCP, it would probably be like 90%. Like what's up with the trace amigo? That guy is always causing problems. So if someone's sucking oxygen, demanding attention all the time, and really creating a lot of drama, that person might actually be an HCP. Now, who knows? You know, go to your local psychologist and check with them, but you might find the framework empowering. Speaking of empowering, I bet you're asking, what should I do about HCPs? And there's some really important rules. So I wrote down five of them. This has come up in my life quite a bit. 
in the past five years and something I've been thinking a lot about. So I'm excited to share some of the stuff on the podcast. The first one is you cannot tell the person they are high conflict. It's not like having a crumb in your beard. Always tell those people because they make it to the bathroom and they see that crumb and you were sitting with them the whole time at dinner. That's going to be bad for you. All right. Okay. So if you suspect someone is an HCP that has borderline or is a narcissist or a covert narcissist or heaven forbid, a sociopath, do not tell them that you suspect that under any circumstances. There's a variety of reasons for this, but that's the rule. It's not going to end well. The second rule, which is related is don't tell people that have a relationship with that person that you suspect that they have a personality disorder. People enter into relationships for different reasons with different aims. And everyone has the right to have the relationship they want with somebody. Don't get involved in that. It will not end well either. Again, this is our secret, the Tropical MBA universe secret. If you know this stuff, don't share it freely with others. This is simply to equip and empower you to move in a positive direction in your life. We don't need to go around analyzing people. It doesn't end well. The third thing, and this is really common, when you start to encounter this literature, you may start to identify people in your family tree who could be an HCP. It's a very common experience where this kind of comes to you like, oh, wow, no wonder like so many X happened or whatever. I think why this can be really great in that situation is we talked about before, the issue is not the issue with HCPs. And you can start to set some clear boundaries and just realign what that relationship means and experience the best part of the relationship and not getting hung up on cyclical patterns like repeating conversations that just really bring stress and discord between the two parties that you can kind of glide over it a little bit. You say, oh, okay, of course they're going to do that. They're expressing, you know, pain and that's okay, but I don't have to take on the pain because it's not necessarily like a 50-50 thing right now. A lot of this literature, Ian, recommends neutral and de-escalating responses. So again, if the issue is not the issue, that can empower you. You don't have to get in a debate with an HCP every time. Just recognize their argument, recognize their emotion, and then just move on. Um, and then finally, my final piece of advice is, is compassion. You know, like I feel like this can be really empowering, especially if you're committed to a relationship with someone who has a lot of conflict. You can now treat them with compassion. You can understand where they're coming from a little bit better. And also, you know, not feel so negative that if the issue is not the issue and the issue is really the expression of a high conflict personality, you can have a lot more compassion and frankly, a lot more fun and get moving on to the good parts of life. That's it. Glad I got the opportunity to share this. I think it's so easy to relate to loving someone or being committed to someone or just having to be around someone who causes a lot of problems. And I think that there's like this framework of personality disorders and this new literature that's emerging. Not all of it's new, but this is not exactly like stuff that was around 70, 100 years ago. It's sort of coalescing and coming together. And I'm sure if we were to do this podcast in 20 years, the literature would change quite dramatically. So I'm not saying, suggesting that this is the truth of the universe or that this is exactly how people work. But what I am saying is if I knew this when I was 20 years old, I think life would have been just a little bit easier. 
Well, all I can say is uh, I'm feeling seen. I don't know if that's a good thing, but uh, I'm definitely feeling seen at this point. (laughs) (laughs) Whenever uh, Bill Eddy, he's actually founded the High Conflict Institution. Yeah, Bill Eddy is a founder entrepreneur as well. It's pretty cool, man, that he's like basically devoted himself to this. And then so I was reading one of the articles over here and it's about high conflict individuals and first comment because he has comments on and that's always fun. My mother and sister-in-law are like this. Do you think it can be genetic? I don't know. I think that's one of those things in 20 years we might find out though. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Ian, that's it. The pod's (laughs) over. Do you have anything to say at the end? Oh, man. This is a good one, Dan. I didn't write anything for the end of the episode. That's the end of the podcast. We'll be back next Thursday morning. (laughs) I hope you enjoyed it. Go check out the book. Check out Bill Eddy's Institute. Bill, if you're listening, come on the pod, man. We'd love to have you. That's it for this week. Screw you, Bill. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'm sure he'd know how to handle that. (laughs) All right. We'll be back next Thursday morning. We think. (laughs) (laughs) See you then. Thanks for listening. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.